or rather, as by sticking a pin through a butterfly, thus at once depriving it of life and causing it to stiffen in an ungainly and unnatural attitude. A high truth indeed fairly finely and skillfully wrought out, brightening at every step and crowning the final development of a work of fiction, may add an artistic glory, but is never any truer and seldom any more evident at the last page than at the first. The reader may perhaps choose to assign an actual locality to the imaginary events of this narrative, if permitted by the historical connection, which, though slight, was essential to his plan, the author would very willingly have avoided anything of this nature. Not to speak of other obligations, it exposes the romance to an inflexible and exceedingly dangerous species of criticism, by bringing his family pictures almost into positive contact with the realities of the moment— it has been no part of his object, however, to describe local manners, nor in any way to meddle with the characteristics of a community for whom he cherishes a proper respect and a natural regard. He trusts not to be considered as unpardonably offending by laying out a street that infringes upon nobody's private rights, and appropriating a lot of land which had no visible owner, and building a house of materials long in use for constructing castles in the air. The personages of the tale, though they give themselves out to be of ancient stability and considerable prominence, are really of the author's own making, or at all events of his own mixing. Their virtues can shed no luster, nor their defects redound in the remotest degree to the discredit of the venerable town of which they profess to be inhabitants. He would be glad, therefore, if, especially in the quarter to which he alludes, the book may be read strictly as a romance having a great deal more to do with the clouds overhead than with any portion of the actual soil of the county of Essex. Lennox, January 27, 1851 1. The Old Pynchon Family Halfway down a by-street of one of our New England towns stands a rusty wooden house with seven acutely peaked gables, facing towards various points of the compass, and a huge clustered chimney in the midst. The street is Pynchon Street. The house is the old Pynchon house, and an elm tree of wide circumference rooted before the door is familiar to every town-born child by the title of the Pynchon Elm. On my occasional visits to the town aforesaid, I seldom fail to turn down Pynchon Street for the sake of passing through the shadow of these two antiquities, the great elm tree and the weather-beaten edifice. The aspect of the venerable mansion has always affected me like a human countenance, bearing the traces not merely of outward storm and sunshine, but expressive also of the long lapse of mortal life and accompanying vicissitudes that have passed within. Were these to be worthily recounted, they would form a narrative of no small interest and instruction, and possessing, moreover, a certain remarkable unity which might almost seem the result of artistic arrangement. But the story would include a chain of events extending over the better part of two centuries, and written out with reasonable amplitude would fill a bigger folio volume or a longer series of duodecimos than could prudently be appropriated to the annals of all New England during a similar period. It consequently becomes imperative to make short work with most of the traditionary lore of which the old Pynchon House, otherwise known as the House of the Seven Gables, has been the theme. 
With a brief sketch, therefore, of the circumstances amid which the foundation of the house was laid, and a rapid glimpse at its quaint exterior, as it grew black in the prevalent east wind, pointing, too, here and there at some spot of more verdant mossiness on its roof and walls, we shall commence the real action of our tale at an epoch not very remote from the present day. Still, there will be a connection with the long past, a reference to forgotten events and personages, and to manners, feelings, and opinions almost or wholly obsolete, which, if adequately translated to the reader, would serve to illustrate how much of old material goes to make up the freshest novelty of human life. Hence, too, might be drawn a weighty lesson from the little-regarded truth that the act of the passing generation is the germ which may and must produce good or evil fruit in a far distant time, that together with the seed of the merely temporary crop which...